Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. What we're trying to do on these SALT Talks and at our conferences is provide a window into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we are thrilled today to welcome you to the third installment of our Pandemic Venture Investment Series, where top entrepreneurs, investors, and business leaders dive deep into the challenges and opportunities arising from the pandemic crisis and discuss break breakthrough technologies that address issues from the coronavirus pan uh, prevention and cure to social distancing and food supply. The series is presented in partnership with Our Crowd, which is a leading global venture investment platform. And today's episode is titled Startups Tackling COVID and Other Global Health Challenges. And it features Eyal Deshay, a chairman of MIGVAX, Dr. Gilly Regev, chief executive of Sanitize, and Dr. Giddy Stein, the co-founder and chief executive officer of MetaWare. Today's episode will be moderated by our crowd's chief content officer, Matthew Kalman. Just a reminder, if you have any questions during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And now I'll kick it over to Matthew uh, to host today's talk. Thank you, John. And welcome to this, the third episode in the Pandemic Venture Investment Series of SALT Talks presented with our crowd, where we showcase the latest advances in startup technology that's helping to address this worldwide crisis. I'm Matthew Kalman, the Chief Content Officer at Our Crowd, which is a global venture investing platform based here in Jerusalem. Today, we're going straight to the heart of the crisis to speak to three CEOs of medical startups at the cutting edge of the battle against COVID-19, helping us to overcome the challenges of safer and more efficient healthcare. Joining us today is Dr. Gilly Regev, the CEO of Sanitize. They're based in Canada and they've been conducting clinical trials of what I think is the world's first and only proven therapy against the coronavirus. We also have Eyal Deshe, the chairman of the board of MIGVAX, an Israeli company developing uh, what will be an oral vaccine against COVID-19. And we have Dr. Giddy Stein, the CEO of MedAware, which uses artificial intelligence to prevent errors in medication that are a leading cause of unnecessary deaths among patients. So we have lots to discuss. Let's start with the search for a vaccine against the coronavirus. There's been big news this past week about the success of trials of a vaccine being developed by Pfizer. And let's begin with the chairman of MIGVAX, Eyal Deshe. Now, Eyal, you have many years of experience of drug and therapy development in your previous role as executive vice president and chief financial officer of Teva Pharmaceuticals. So from your experience, does the news from Pfizer this week mean that it's game over, they have the solution, and you and your team at MIGVAX can just pack your bags and shut up shop? Do we, do we still need an oral vaccine? Well, uh, first of all, uh, good morning and good afternoon, everyone uh, that is listening to us. Happy to be here and share some of, uh, of uh, my thoughts and, and our thoughts at MIGVAX, how we address uh, this challenging uh, uh, pandemic uh, and uh, our, what's our approach and what we see from you know, the view from our window, how it looks like. First of all, I think, I think it's you know, the, the announcement by Pfizer that, that uh, they believe that their uh, vaccine is, is safe and effective is great news. I am convinced that there will be others 
that will follow. Different mechanism of actions. Uh, there will be vaccines uh, against COVID-19. Uh, it is cha challenging, but it seems to be possible. Uh, and, and by the way, let's not forget that it was developed at record time and never in the history of, of, of medicine uh, uh, a vaccine was developed so so fast and so quickly, but nobody really started uh, from zero. That said, that said, uh, I would cautious from declaring victory. I think that if we learn something important and major uh, about the coronavirus uh, since it was introduced early this year, the beginning of this year is that we don't know what we don't know and we don't know enough. There are so many researchers and studies conducted all over the world. There's, I think, think I read somewhere that uh, there, there's an article or, 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 or a paper on, on the subject which is issued every three seconds. Uh, so, so a lot of people are, are, are already diving very deeply uh, into how to solve this virus and possible other viruses that might might follow, we might be, you know, at the at the beginning of an of an era that uh, that's not a race for the vaccine; it's a race after the virus. Uh, but I think, you know, to start with, it's great news uh, uh, for me. And you mentioned I spent 17 years in, in, in Teva. You know, I didn't do drug development myself, but I did I did, I did fund it. Uh, and, and, and looked at results and, and, and how the process works. The, the idea that, that, uh, that uh, you know, a vaccine for such a major disease or virus is approved based on a sample of 100 people that were diagnosed, uh, especially those people that were not diagnosed and were in the trial. Uh, it's a little difficult for me to digest. I think that over time we'll have more data so we, there'll be more people. Uh, uh, I think we need we need much much more 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 data and experience in order to be convinced that this this is it. There'll be other vaccines, no question. Now let, let's let's say something about what we do in Vicvax. Uh, we're developing oral vaccine, uh, which is which is simple to use, easy to administer, doesn't need minus 70, 70 degrees. Uh, freezing can, can be kept in the refrigerator of the school, and the school nurse can uh, give a small ampule to uh, to to the to the students uh, uh, to drink, uh, and then come again three weeks later and give them the second uh, the second dose, and hopefully they are uh, they are immune, they're vaccinated. Uh, so it's very very simple to operate. It's also simple to produced once we cracked, and we believe we cracked, the construct of, uh, uh, of, 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 the, of the materials, uh, and uh, which was not easy to develop. That's why it's taking us time. But uh, as I said before, nobody really started from zero or from scratch. Uh, we're based on many, many, many years of uh, research in, in uh, chicken, um, a vaccine that was developed in the Migal Academic Institute in the north part of Israel uh, by very experienced and, and capable uh, scientists. It's a construct of, of, uh, 
treat proteins and, and adjuvant that leads them to the right uh, immune system uh, uh, in the body. It's mucosides go through to, to the throat and then to the to, to our digestion system where it activates uh, uh, the, the immune uh, systems in the body. And, and, and it has experience in millions and millions of chickens that were vaccinated successfully uh, uh, with this technology. Uh, now we validated this with mice uh, and uh, we're ready to for, for the final uh, trial uh, with animals before we move into uh, our phase one, two in humans. Uh, and we hope that if everything works right, a little less than a year from now, we'll have an oral, a safe, easy to use uh, uh, vaccine uh, that will be available. So let's keep our finger crossed uh, because it still is extremely challenging. And as I said, there'll be room for a number of vaccines around the world. And, and at the end of the day, there should be enough to really vaccinate everybody if we want to get rid of this thing. So you're looking maybe at by the end of next year, you think that um, it, this might be ready to be on the market? Yeah, with the, with the disclaimer that we need to go through the phases successfully uh, and you know, everybody that was involved in, in development of vaccines of drugs knows how many things might go wrong. But we're, we're hopeful because we look, we look at the success of this technology with millions, hundreds of millions of, uh, of birds, of chickens that were vaccinated against a virus from, from the same SARS family, uh, very, very similar in its structure to the COVID-19. So we know it works. We, we absolutely know it works, but development is a, is a, is a process with many hurdles. Let's bring in some other people from our panel, because until we have a vaccine, we need protection from the coronavirus. We have masks, we have sanitizer, we have social distancing. Uh, but a Canadian company called Sanitize believes it can go one step further. And with a simple nasal spray, it can actually kill the virus after we've inhaled it, but before it spreads to the lungs. Uh, and Dr. Gilly Regev, who's the CEO of Sanitize, is with us. Uh, Dr. Regev, so what's the difference between a therapy and a vaccine? Thank you, Matthew. Thank you all for being here. First of all, I, I would like to say I agree with AL. There won't be one treatment. It will be a combination of, of a few different treatments and, and vaccines will be one, some of them, but it's not necessarily just a vaccine. I think the, the big difference, um, they're both, we're talking about prevention. The vaccine will prevent you from getting sick from the disease. Uh, it's not that far from what Sanitize is doing. Sanitize has, I think we were um, the, first, the first company that actually came out with a nasal spray back in April with the idea that the virus multiply in the nose. And if the virus multiply in the nose and we can kill the virus at that point before it becomes a full blown infection, then we cure the disease. The, um, the, the big advantage of what Sanitize has, I think, is that it's, it's not specific 
to this specific virus, or um, if the virus mutates or change, then this will still work. So our treatment, our nasal spray is based on a delivery of nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is um, a natural molecule, molecule that we all produce in our body. It is our, for, our body's first line of defense against infection. So it's not um, something new to the body. And when we deliver it, we deliver it topically through a liquid that delivers the nitric oxide. Nitric oxide um, was, there was a publication that came out last month that was from a university in, uh, from Uppsala University in Sweden, that the researcher actually said that, that nitric oxide is the only compound so far that have shown a direct effect on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So we know nitric oxide kills the virus. We know that um, if you get the right dose to the right place, you will get rid of the virus. And what we have done so far is we've already done in vitro. So we took the, our liquid formulation, we show that it can get rid of the virus very quickly in the lab. And then we've done recently, I don't think I even updated you, Matthew, but recently we have done some, um, animal testing in hamsters and have shown that the day post-infection, we got a few log reductions of the virus in the nose of hamsters, which is a, a very strong model because they have receptors similar to human. So we know that this has a huge um, efficacy uh, potential. We have completed over a hundred people in a phase two clinical trial in Canada. We've shown very strong safety of this nasal spray. Um, and all that's left for us is to complete a phase two of efficacy trial showing that this is, um, this is actually working in human and can prevent you from getting infected. The idea is a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like a hand sanitizer or you use a hand sanitizer when you go outside and you need to clean your hands. It's the same thing, you go outside and then you just come back and you spray it in your nose and you can get rid of the virus. So it could, it could be prevention, it could also be an early treatment, so early on on the disease, and this is the trial we're, we're doing right now. What are the kind of challenges that you're facing uh, actually doing clinical trials for an anti-COVID therapy? Because in order to test this, you have to find people who might have been exposed to the virus, they might be sick. Um, there's been polls taken uh, in the last week about whether people are gonna be prepared to actually take the vaccine if the Pfizer vaccine is, is proved to be successful. Are you, are you finding people are willing to join the trials? There are lots of challenges. I think um, there are always challenges with doing clinical trials. We've been in this field for many years and we've done clinical trials in other indications and there are always challenges in clinical trials. But with COVID, it is, it is so much more. First of all, because as Eyal said, we still don't know more than we know. This is changing all the time. And if you design a clinical trial, Two months ago, the design may be different today. The endpoints, what you're looking for is different. Um, the outbreak centers are shifting. So, um, I, I mean, our biggest uh, internal joke is all we have is to start a clinical trial in one location and we cure COVID because then the cases come down and then it's hard to recruit, right? So you have to shift into a decentralized 
clinical trials, which is a new term coming up now with doing trials that are not in one location, one center, so you can, you can recruit from different places. Uh, as for prevention, I think the, the big challenge is prevention needs very large numbers to show prevention. Um, it's even a little bit more challenging for us than for the vaccines because we need a control arm when we need to show that people in the control arm got infected versus people in the treatment arm that do not get infected. So you need a really large sample size. And in the treatment, if you want to look at people very early on on the disease, then First of all, it's hard to find them and you need to identify the people right when they're tested positive. And a lot of people, when they're tested positive, they're already sick for a week. So it's not necessarily early. Finding those people early on in the disease is challenging and looking at what your endpoint. One of the, um, most of these studies are done in treatment later in the disease when people are at hospital, very sick. If we wanna show it early, then one of the endpoints could be, okay, let's look at hospitalization and how many people get eventually to the hospital and we want to reduce this. But hospitalization is coming down uh, because there are more young people getting sick. So this shifts as well. So all the shifts during this disease and the progression um, and everything we learn makes it very, very challenging in a clinical trial world. And we keep learning all the time. So um, Eyal said, uh, with all the uh, caveats and, and all the challenges that need to be overcome, they might have the MIGVAX vaccine by the end of next year. Are you prepared to uh, tell us when we might have sanitized to protect us in the meantime? We just, have a, we just had a good meeting with Health Canada. We, we um, believe from what we heard from them that once we show an efficacy in a phase two, they will uh, release, they will um, consider releasing this to the market. So they do, will not require phase three due to the very strong um, safety profile of our treatment. So I would hope that by Q2 2021, this will have an approval. That, okay. That's the goal. Okay, I'll be speaking to you in about six months time to, uh, to check that out. Um, now, as, as we know, this uh, crisis has thrown the world's health systems into turmoil. Um, but even before the current crisis, the normal pressures of patient care were contributing to mistakes involving uh, giving patients the wrong drugs and leading to unnecessary deaths. And that's exactly the purpose of Medaware, which is the company that was founded by Dr. Giddy Stein to address uh, that issue. So. Uh, Dr. Stein, before we come on to talk about your particular technology, I wonder how, as someone who knows the, 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 the healthcare world well and up close, how much would you say has the COVID crisis changed the way that we deliver healthcare? So, so hi, and, and really thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to, to talk with you. And, you know, COVID is, is a terrible disease millions of patients are dying, but it also represents an opportunity because it takes to the extreme trends that were already brewing in recent years. And today we, we, we understand that being in a hospital could be one of the worst things that could happen to a patient. Hospitals are not safe. Uh, patients get infected, physicians, nurses also get infected. So we have to change the paradigm by which we provide health 
and not hurting our patients in the meantime. And, and there are a lot of turmoil around that. And I think the trend is going into a, 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 distributed, a distributed hospital, decentralized hospital. So think of the possibility that an elderly person can be hospitalized at home. Uh, don't have to go to the ER, don't have to go through uh, uh, you know, all the crowded spaces, all the uh, nursing facilities. You can just stay at home and get your care at home. Now, suddenly, healthcare is not bounded by walls and by buildings. The same staff can provide health to a much wider audience and much safer health. Now, obviously, there are a lot of, of, of workflows, issues, and technological issues that uh, prohibit us from doing so. But today, more and more emphasis is going on, on telehealth, on remote monitoring, and, and I think, COVID brings us a wonderful opportunity to really change the paradigms of which we provide health to our patients by really treating them at home and shifting the center from the hospital to the patient home. So Gidi, if we, if we take that to its logical conclusion, and we've heard similar, uh, similar thoughts from Johns Hopkins and from uh, Shiva Hospital here in, 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 in Israel on, on previous our crowd, uh, events dealing with healthcare, and so there does seem to be a move in this direction away from centralized hospitals. But but you, Medaware deals with mistakes in prescribing and and and, and giving of of drugs and, and medications. Don't you think that those kinds of mistakes and problems will be multiplied even more if you decentralize the care so people are are, are taking things in their own homes? So last week, uh, there was a, a new article published in the Journal of Medical, Medical Informatics Association, in which uh, Medaware did in, in a partnership with Sheba, in which uh, we have shown that overworked, tired, uh, sleep-deprived physicians, unexperienced, have like a two to eight times likelihood of, uh, of erroneous prescribing. So obviously, even taking those hospitals and driving them into the extreme, and even in no, no, normal circumstances, the likelihood of erroneous prescribing and, and medication risk is quite substantial, especially in the middle of the night uh, after uh, two, uh, two long shifts. And, and I agree that taking these uh, distribution of patients to their home, far from the eyes, far from the heart, obviously a lot of room for, uh, for, for mistakes and errors. And this is where I think uh, technology similar to ours can be of benefit because we can provide the, the real-time monitoring of the sensor data, of the clinical data, and merging them uh, and extracting only those rare events that can actually harm the patient and, and surfacing them to the, to the providers or to nurses or to the care coordinators. Because one of the challenges in treating patients today, and especially in a distributed manner, is that there's so much information. We are flooded with information as, as clinicians and it's hard to know our left from our right and within five minutes that we have to see the patient really understand the longitudinal patient record. So if there is a sophisticated AI system that can really pick up the specific risks in real time and send them directly to the right providers and caregivers, this could facilitate a, a reducing of the overall patient uh, risk 
drive to more distributed healthcare and patients treated at home. So just talk us through the MedAware system. How exactly does it intervene in the process in order to try and stop these mistakes occur? So what we do is basically listen to all the data that comes from the electronic medical records and from the sensors and the claims data on a continuous manner. And using our AI technology, we quote unquote understand the, and learn the behavior patterns of clinicians and identify outlier situations as potential errors and flag them uh, in the right time. So if a physician would prescribe a medication that is a complete anomaly to the patient characteristics, or if a, a, suddenly a patient has a new lab test or vital signs, which usually is an outlier to the patient's medical uh, medication list, then we would provide uh, the right alert to say, hey, we may have a mixed match here. If a patient is bleeding and is anticoagulation, it doesn't make sense. And this is where our AI platforms identify these risks and alert the clinicians at the right time. Right. Uh, let's go back to uh, Al Deshek because I wanted to talk to you uh, about the, the 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 question uh, uh, that Giddy has raised about the fact that this pandemic is not just a, a terrible disaster, but it also presents a kind of business challenge and maybe even a business opportunity. And how do you see the whole business model here uh, has changed because of the pandemic? As you say, these vaccines are being produced in record time. Uh, you, 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 you think you, you might be able to get your vaccine out by next year. Things are, this is not the way that, that you were used to doing things at Teva, I'm sure. Well, uh, first of all, we learned that uh, that options are not just something that uh, uh, that high tech companies uh, grant to their employees, but uh, but a tool that government use uh, to try to to secure the health care of their uh, of their population and uh, and are willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on buying those options, many of them are going to be thrown away to the garbage. Uh, so yeah, there are, there are significant financial implications and business implications behind, behind this. We don't know the prices, okay? We don't know the prices. We know that, that uh, if we take the analogy from, from, from the price uh, of, uh, of, of um, regular, regular vaccines, they range between a handful of dollars to, 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 to hundreds, depending, uh, uh, depending on, on, on what kind of, uh, of disease. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so, so the prices are yet to be, to be determined. And I think companies are, are, are kind of pretty silent about uh, how, much they're going, how much they're going to charge. Um, I, but I want to talk about 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 the you know the the other half of this equation. Uh, no question that the, the wealthy world is going to be vaccinated once the vaccine uh, is approved, is FDA approved or EMA approved, any regulatory authority, uh, the uh, Ministry of Health here in Israel, and so on. Um, uh, but I think it opens a series. Of, of moral questions regarding who can afford it, who's going to get it, uh, free of charge, 
or are we going are we going to pay who is going to fund it and who is going to finance it no question look pfizer is 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 a reputable respected pharmaceutical company uh with a high level of ethics yeah, and and i'm happy i'm happy that they were the first uh uh to announce to announce success uh because they will set the moral tone but but uh they're not they're not a charitable organization uh and and they 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 spend money they got money from from the u.s government a lot of it we don't know what kind of agreements they have behind the scenes uh on that uh but hey there's seven billion people on this planet if we want to get rid of this disease and make sure that uh that we can try and prevent other mutations and other uh, uh, other other viruses that might develop uh, uh, out of that, we will have to really vaccinate the majority of the population on the planet, uh, and at least sixty-five percent of the people that live here can't afford it. Uh, so, so I think I think the question is not financial. I think the question is of, of moral and ethics. Let me throw that to to, to Gilly Regev at Sanitize. I mean, you are a, a small company. You're developing a therapy that could help to save the lives of millions, if not billions, of people until we have a vaccine. How can you scale? from uh, uh, testing 100 or 200 or 300 people in Canada to supplying billions of doses of your sanitized spray overnight? This is, this is definitely a challenge. Um, what we have started from the beginning and we've in parallel started to develop a new device, for example, that can, be, can help easily administer the drug. Um, the drug in our case is very inexpensive, which helps to, to be able to eventually allow this to reach regions in the world that, that could afford it as well. Um, I think what we are, we are working in parallel is identifying manufacturing facilities, identifying um, drug uh, production and distribution and partners that have the capabilities and can help us move this forward once we get the approval. So we want everything to be ready to, um, as you know, before you release a drug to the market, there are lots of testing and there is stability data that you need and, and there is um, a lot of safety data that you have to, to collect before. So making sure that once we get to this point of approval, we are ready to give this to distributors and, and have the right partners at that point to help us reach as many people as possible. I think the, um, the, the biggest thing in, in our case may be that even if COVID is solved, and I, I don't know if it will ever be, but in some way, and even if there is a vaccine, um, our treatment could be a flu prevention. So it's not just specific to COVID or the next pandemic that we're gonna see at some point. So I think that everything we do is not gonna just get lost if, if this is not needed in this um, amount, but this will go into a, a flu prevention development further. 
and uh, Giddy Stein, I want I want to come back to you uh, because uh, Al just raised this question that 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 when it comes to the vaccine and who's going to get it, that's kind of a a moral question. But um, we we also see with the application of of different medical solutions that you have to take the human factor in into account uh, and. The, the whole basis of Medaware is that doctors have been making mistakes. And I just wondered, that's, that's not just a moral question, that's a, a human question as well. What kind of take up are you getting from practitioners who are prepared to admit to their mistakes and want to use your technology? So when we try to frame our technology, you know, we, want, we try to be modest. You know. We're not trying to teach physicians their work. We're not trying to teach their medicine. But you can do an analogy of spell checker. I mean, you could be the best poet in the world, write the one, most wonderful songs, but still have typos. So you have a spell checker. It doesn't make you less of a poet. And we look at our system as a spell checker for clinicians. You could be the best doctor in the world, but you know, you're human. You make typos in prescribing, in not looking up in, in, in the right time, all kinds of slip ups. So we can just catch that and surface that. So it doesn't make you less of a doctor, just shows that we're all human. And, and we have shown that taking this strategy and, and, and there's a, a huge uptake of our system by the clinicians because they are aware of their own mistakes. Because although patients are the first to be influenced by the mistake, but there's a second wave, the second wave of the clinicians, nurses, physicians, and others that in pharmacies suddenly understand that due to their mistakes, some life was taken or a patient was harmed. And this causes depression and even in post-traumatic stress disorder, nobody wants to be there because it's not, it's not bad judgment. It's a typo, right? Who wanna kill someone just because of a typo? And we're just making sure this doesn't happen. So, so framing it that way, uh, physicians are accepting our system quite nicely. Let's go back to Eyal Deshe, uh, because you mentioned something uh, very interesting before you, 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 you mentioned the, the funding that various governments have given uh, for, the, uh, for, the, for the research in, into this vaccine. And there's been a, a lot of national pride uh, from different governments. Uh, I'm British. We heard day after day about the Oxford vaccine and how that was going. And I'm, I, I know in different countries, different people want to be first in the race. Do you think that that uh, politicization, if it's occurred, of the funding of this vaccine, has that been helpful? Has it been detrimental? Is it something that you've been able to latch onto, or are you ignoring that sort of nationalistic side of things? Well, um, yeah, there is a new, you know, the new terminology about the nationalization of the vaccine, and we're going to. We're going to hear a lot about uh, about this this argument in the next in the next few months. Look, if you ask me, I think if the world will learn to be a little less competitive and a little more uh, humble and collaborative, we will all live in a better world. But uh, you know, you leaders will have to be replaced before that happens. But this is not a political uh, uh, discussion. This is this is this is discussion about about our health, about the world health. No, I just yeah, wondered I, how, it, how, it, how the politics, if it's impacted the business at all. I, I think, think I'll, I'll tell you what I think, okay. I think, I think that the politics of the vaccine 
uh, uh, is bad politics. Uh, uh, throughout this, the past 10 or 11 months, we've seen, we've seen a lot of money being poured. And yeah, I can understand. I'm an economist by education, okay? I can understand uh, that it's cheaper to, to throw money uh, 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 to the hands of uh, pharmaceutical companies and research, research institutes so they come up with a vaccine than to throw it on, uh, on the economy and, and fund the unemployed. Uh, it's much more cheaper, more economically efficient and effective. I can understand that. Uh, but what I haven't seen is global collaboration. I've seen, I've seen China doing their own and Russia doing their own and, uh, and the US doing their own and Israel is trying to do their own with our limited resources and you're British so the UK takes a lot of pride uh, at, at the Oxford uh, uh, development, uh, which, which, is, which is brought to, 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 to market by, by, by AstraZeneca with all the complications. Uh, it's British pride. We have to forget about it. Uh, this is, we, we, we're talking about a global pandemic, uh, uh, which is being delivered from country to country by iron birds that were uh, invented a hundred years ago. And there's no way to stop it. And anybody that believes that they will uh, uh, make sure their, their country is immune and the problem will be solved or will not be solved because there'll be other diseases. Uh, and, and I think that calls for some global collaboration. And unfortunately, we haven't seen that. We have seen that in wars uh, that, that countries create treaties uh, in order to fight a joint enemy. Uh, this is an animal which is which is now worse than some of of the worst enemies of uh, of, of 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 mankind in history, and there's no collaboration between countries. So if you ask me, politics, the vaccine politics is bad politics. I hope it will change. Okay. Excuse me. Excuse me, and and apologize for being a bit blunt. <laughs> That's what we're here for, G Gilly Regev. Uh, I, I want to ask you a, a slightly different question. Here we are in something that's become known as impact investing. We're, 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 we're looking at commercial companies, uh, but we're also trying to do good and, and, and help people. Uh, when, when you approach your science and your business, uh, are you looking at this in a, 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 just a, a, a straightforward business manner? Or are you also thinking, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm also helping to do good? I'm personally in this to do good. That, that's why I'm doing this. I don't think anyone would, would be able to work the way we work these days uh, if there wasn't anything besides just to be successful. This is, this is to change the world. This is to, make, to do good. We started this to, to help people with diabetic ulcers, to help people that are suffering from chronic sinusitis and from pain all their lives and try to do good here. So I think part of our, um, and a bunch of our investors are impact investors because part of the reason we're doing this is because nitric oxide can, can kill drug resistant bacteria. And I think this is the big problem that we, we started the company from is the reality that antibiotic is not gonna work forever. And who knows the next pandemic, could be due to antibiotic resistance and not due to a virus. Um, the, the options are getting lower and lower. They're 
large companies do not develop new antibiotic because it doesn't worth it for them because they get resistance very quickly. So there must be um, a way to address the problem. And, and the only way is to get this impact investors and people that really care about what they put their money in and trying to not just make a successful business, but also a, a business that would change the world, that would help people. And I think that's a very important point. Giddy Stein from, from Medware, what was, what was your motivation for founding the company? Was it because it looked like a good business or, or was it because uh, you saw this problem up close? You know, before I started this company, I was a full-time physician on the way to professorship in, in Tel Aviv University. I teach students and residents and I, I saw that this would be the trajectory of my life and I definitely never thought I would do startups. I thought it's a completely crazy idea. But then I was encountered with a case of a nine-year-old boy that here in Israel died simply because his physician clicked on the wrong entry of the medication list and gave him the wrong drug by mistake. And the ease by which a physician can kill a patient just by clicking on the wrong button without any real safety mechanism was haunting. And you know, I thought it could happen to me as a prescriber. It could happen to one of my kids, God forbid, if they go to the doctor. And I thought we should do something about that. And here we are today. Okay. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, today, we've heard from just three of the 200 companies in the Our Crowd portfolio, and you can see more technology and startups and investment opportunities in both medtech and many other sectors on the Our Crowd platform. That's all we have time for. I want to thank our speakers, Dr. Giddy Rega from Sanitize, Al Desha from Migvax, and Giddy, Dr. Giddy Stein from Medaware. Make sure to join us for the next installment next Thursday. Thank you to John Darcy and our partners at SALT, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>